Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so you can develop products that customers love. Today, we're talking about if and how Lean Startup, which is thought of as startups, how it can be used for large organizations. And to tackle this topic, Jim Eichner joins us. He has helped many large companies implement innovation practices, including Lean Startup. He's also written the book on the topic, which is called Lean Startup in Large Organizations. Very descriptive there. And he served in executive positions responsible for innovation at many large organizations. He's also the co-founder of the, of the MIT Innovation Laboratory, which I'm just fascinated about. As we go through this discussion, if you want to go back and find a detailed written summary of what we talk about, including a one-page action guide to help you put into action immediately the key takeaways from our time, just go to productmasterynow.com slash 373. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think we need a foundation for our discussion because when people talk about lean and lean startup, there's different connotations and there's actually a difference between lean and lean startup things. So so help us with that. What are the key principles of lean startup? Okay. I think there are uh, seven principles and they were really originally articulated by Eric Reese together with Steve Blank. And I divide them into principles for how you innovate and principles on what you're trying to learn. So the principles related to how you uh, innovate are the lean learning loop, the pivot or persist decision, and the minimum viable product. So let me just go through them quickly. The lean learning loop is really just a business experiment. You have something you want to learn, whether it's about the customer or the channel or willingness to pay, and you articulate clearly what the hypothesis is. You design some sort of experiment in order to learn about it, you execute the experiment and you learn. And that may cause you to validate or invalidate or modify your hypothesis in some way. The the minimum viable product is often the vehicle you use in the experiment to do the experiment. So it's the minimum prototype of some sort that you can use to get a reaction in the world to teach you what you want to learn. And it can be something that's in you know, we've done experiments at Goodyear in Goodyear auto stores. We've done them with products themselves. We've done at, you know, at mines, wherever. They're in situ. They're in the world. They're not necessarily in market yet, but you're learning. And the prototype is helping you to do that. In the, in the startup world, lean minimum viable product means it's actually in market. It's the minimal solution for some subset that uh, solves a big enough problem for them to be able to, to deal with. So the, the, that business experiment is the lean learning loops, the pivot or persist decision, and the minimum viable product are the key elements for learning. You have to keep track of them. So Reese uses a term called innovation accounting. I find that to be very important. If you don't do it, if you don't keep track of your learning agenda, then pretty soon you stop doing experiments and just do whatever seems to be in front of you. So those are the the core principles. And then the three things that are the, what I call the what to learn, that are the value hypothesis, how you create value for customers, the business model hypothesis, how you capture value for yourself, and the growth hypothesis, how you're going to scale. And each of those is very different in large corporations than inside a startup, which doesn't really have any, you know, any context that it has to embed itself in. So those are the basic principles. Excellent. Thanks for going through all those and also for adding a a little bit of the nuance around MVP, 
about, you know, in the startup world, that's really a product and market. For others of us, I, I think of that as that is the experiment to learn from. And some have called this like the minimal viable experiment is what we should be talking about, the MVE sort of thing as well. Yeah, you know, they use MVP with all caps. I sometimes use all small letters to indicate it's a, a prototype. And there can yeah, be right. all sorts of prototypes. They don't need to be products. They they can be prototypes that, we're, you know, we did one, for example, to ch- test a channel like good for an eco-friendly tire. And the experiment was just create a mocked up eco-friendly tire, didn't yet exist. The marketing materials go to the stores and try to sell it and see how people react to it and keep track of that information. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of, it's not an in-market product, but it's with market is the term I used. Yeah. And I like that perspective too, of MVP can be the you know, minimum uh, viable prototype. And sometimes the language does get in the way a little bit, you know, in large organizations, when we say product, often there's this very large connotation of what that means to an organization. When we say prototype, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, we, we can do that, right? We can have that done next week. You, you, you mentioned Goodyear, and I know because Norbert Majerius, I don't know if you know Norbert. Yeah, no, okay. Sure. He, he's been on the podcast before. So I, I know that Goodyear has had some successes with this. But other organizations have not. If listeners want to go back and do a search through the podcast for first build, I, I came across this basically an innovation incubator for GE appliance. And yes. when we talked about that, asked, well, how did first build come into existence? And the person that was leading that told me, you know, they had brought in Eric Reese for about five years. They had tried to really build lean startup principles into GE um, appliance as an organization. And they were just finding you know, hurdles with that, right? That the culture of the organization that was in place made that challenging to adopt a, a kind of a startup mentality. And so one of the steps they took to help with this was, well, let's make something completely separate. We'll do this innovation incubator that's a, a separate building, separate facility off the GE Appliance campus. And that's where they do experiments, right? And experiments that lead to functioning prototypes that lead to small run products, you know, in the marketplace, so not every organization is successful bringing in Lean Startup, even though they try hard. This is a quick break to thank you for listening. And I'd like to recommend some recommendations for improving your product capability and helping your organization generate greater revenue. Whether you're a product manager or you lead product managers, you're going to find these recommendations helpful. They're based on insights I've learned after working with several organizations, helping them improve by using my Rapid Product Mastery Experience or RPM Experience. The report contains 10 recommendations. The first one is worth getting the report all by itself, and you can put it into practice in only five minutes. I've shared it many times recently. For example, when a leader from Dell Computers asked what they can do to create a more innovation-oriented culture, the first recommendation was what they needed to change. Also, when a startup founder was struggling with conveying their value proposition, once again, the first recommendation showed him how to reframe the way they present the work. Further, when a product manager with several years of experience was finding interviewing for a new job with another company to be kind of challenging, the first recommendation showed him how to best position his experience for any opportunity. All that from only one recommendation. Now to get it and nine others in my report that's titled 10 Changes Product Teams Should Make Now to Consistently Launch Products Customers Love, simply go to productmasterynow.com love. That's L-O-V-E, love, because the recommendations will help you better create products customers love. 
Don't miss out on what other product managers, leaders, and innovators are already benefiting from. Go to productmasterynow.com slash love. It's worth a minute it will take you to do that and not miss out on what others are already putting into action. You're going to help us figure this out, but but let's start with why it's hard. Why, why do organizations struggle with this? Yeah, the, the reason it's hard is because there's a you're innovating inside a context. So if people, you have engineers in the audience, there's an impedance mismatch between the, the startup and what needs to happen there and the, the core business. There are ways, I, I, I use the phrase, yes, and. You use the lean startup practices and principles and you do things to help make them work in the corporate environment. Each of them each practice induces antibodies in the organization. So just, just to use an example, the lean learning loop, the experiment, the pivot decision, that can seem very chaotic for an organization that's used to deciding what products they want to build, targeting the price point, targeting the cost, running through a stage, a traditional stage gate process. It can seem chaotic to go wherever the customer tells you, go wherever the business tells you. So the, what what I recommend in that instance is a, a sort of innovation stage gate. It's a place where at each for each of the big things you want to learn, the customer value proposition, the business model, and the model to scale. In each of those phases, you're as as uh, agile as you need to be. You use lean startup practices, but at the end of each stage, you have a deliverable, and that's reviewable, and people can decide to proceed or not to proceed. So you're containing the chaos. That's a, that's a, an example of what you can do. It's a different, it, people say, how can you even put stage gate and innovation in the same phrase? But it's a different kind of, uh, of a gate. And the concept resonates inside large corporations. But whereas a traditional stage gate is what I would call successive refinement, you take something and you just get more detailed until you implement it. The, the innovation stage gate is successive elaboration. You get something and you keep elaborating it and growing it and learning over time using Lean Startup. So that's one instance of where there's a reaction and there's a practice to make it work inside the corporation. You could say the same thing with a, a minimum viable product. I think we talked about this a little bit before. It freaks out IT departments and engineering departments because they're legitimately afraid you're going to get something, you're going to take it to market, and it's not going to be maintainable, sustainable. It's not going to adhere to any standard operating environments. It may not even have the safety and liability concerns taken care of. In that case, I recommend something that I would call graduated engagement. You give pretty much free reign to build these prototypes up until you get into incubation. But during incubation, that can take six or nine months, you commit we will deal with the issues that you raise during that incubation phase and we'll keep you posted throughout so that any concerns you have can start getting on the list. But you don't slow things down in the, you know, at all in order to do it. You put these things in parallel. So that, I found that works too. It, it's, a, it's one of the practices that can work to make the existing functions work constructively with the innovation team. The, the challenge I have with just sort of separating it out is that you're throwing away your big advantage of being a big company, right? So if, you, if you're too far separate, then you can't really leverage the assets of the core business. And at some point, you're going to want to do that. At Goodyear, for example, we needed to leverage the service network 
in order to be in order to do some of the installation to do to close the loop on on some of the maintenance that we were that our new business was recommending if you're not working the issues inside the corporation in some way then when it comes time to leverage the assets you can't do it okay let me go back and break out a few things here. The the antibodies that show up inside of larger organizations, right? They're in response that we're asking the organization to do something different. As you pointed out, I think a, a really good point is that engineers are going to be concerned about if this thing looks too different from the norm, are we going to end up with something that isn't really maintainable, isn't really supportable in the product that we're going to have future issues with down the road? And so the antibodies have good intention and, and we need to address that. And so I liked, you know, addressing the engineering department's concerns by saying, okay, we're going to collect all of, of the issues that you raise and we're going to put them in this later stage and make sure we deal with them to your satisfaction. That, that's a good way to, to overcome that and, right, and kind of move the culture forward. How else have you seen the antibodies emerging and, and, and how to maybe put some of the fear at rest until we can deal with them? So the, the two that we've talked about are the innovation stage gate and the what we call graduated engagement. Mm-hmm. Th- those deal with how the you know how the organizations work together. You know how the existing functions and business work with the the startup. When you get to the other things, the you know the other hypotheses that are core to lean startup. The you know the customer or the value hypothesis and the and the business and the and the growth hypothesis. They trigger reactions at a deeper level and maybe even at a more executive level. So when you're the the growth, the the customer value proposition, if you follow the customer, can take you places the company is not sure it wants to go. So you create an identity issue and you end up with something that might be very viable, but the business might say, Why are we here? How did we end up in healthcare, for example? And, and so the, there are pra- the practice there, I suggest, is being very clear about the opportunity spaces that you want to be inter- that you want to operate in and the assets that you want to leverage. The biggest concern on the business model is that you'll cannibalize the business. You'll look good by making the core business less good. And you can develop a business model with keen awareness of its impact on the core business. And you can measure that. And you can do that during incubation and so forth. So keeping track of the effect on the core is uh, is a key factor. And oftentimes, if you do that, you'll you'll help both. You'll have a new business and you'll help the core if you're if you're leveraging the assets. And when you get to the growth side of it, I think one of the most effective practices is at that point separate out for incubation the 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 new business. And sit down and explicitly negotiate the arrangements with them. When I was at Goodyear and we launched a new services-led business that was based on IoT and, and analytics in the cloud to predict when a tire might fail, we did that. We got the, the senior leaders of the tire business together with, with the venture team and said, how should we organize this? Should it be separate or should it be integrated? What are the pros and cons of those? If it's separated what should be the negotiations? How do you leverage the existing sales force? How does that relate to the new sales force? How do we, who has the main customer list? How do we share customer lists? How do we close the loop uh, with our core business? So you sit down and discuss all those things and then you, you let the new business run outside the, the pressures on the core business that can often suffocate it. But by then you're, you're, you've got, you're both independent and connected. 
Yeah, I think a, a message through this that I keep hearing from you is the need to be flexible, right? That we have options along the way at, at each step of this work, right? And so, if, like you said, if we end up with a value proposition that is pulling us in a direction away from our core business that we don't want to do, well, you know, then we can look at spinning that off to another organization, right? It doesn't mean that we have to be afraid about going that direction. We can, we can do a reasonable thing. And then talking to the end, what do we do with this new venture? Does it make sense to be part of the core business? Does it make sense to be a new business? What are the options there? Right. And you do those, you make those decisions at different stages. So you're, right. I think the, the keys are be open. So share what's actually going on. People sometimes are so afraid that they're going to get squashed that they hoard information. The second is to be flexible, to try to figure out what will work in your context without sacrificing what you need to do. And then the final thing is to try to be a little empathetic. I think people resist not because they're troglodytes or they're, they're, they're bad people or they don't like innovation. They have good reasons. They, they right. always have good reasons. If you can understand the good reasons and you have a good enough relationship, you can find ways to move forward. If you, if you stay in separate camps, you can't. And eventually it falls apart. Right. Yeah. And we have to be moving forward together or it will fall apart. So that's important. Empathy makes a big difference. How can companies who haven't, well, let's do this from the product manager perspective. You know, the, what can we do maybe in our organization to help lean startup principles be more effective? Maybe we haven't tried that before, or we hear stories about the organization tried that in the past, right, before we were there, but we want to try it again, right? So what might be some steps that we take about uh, getting this started? I think that there, you know, it is a system, right? So it's a little bit hard to pull a piece out. People sometimes will pull out the minimum viable product and say, we're doing that. But then it's not embedded in any experiments. They don't track, right. you know, customer insight. So it's not a minimum viable product. It's just a little product. It's a, a prototype. So there's a system and you need to be conscious of that to make sure that you're adhering to the, the underlying principles, which is just learn and learn fast. That's what the what the goals are. I think oftentimes product managers are not in a place where they're creating new business models or entirely new businesses. They're creating new products and they would like to use uh, these principles. In that case, I would say use that lean learning loop. Use the minimum viable prototype, especially in physical product companies where you can't just roll something out without you know, testing it and assuring its safety and dealing with liability issues. Use the uh, lean learning loop keep track of your learning and try to shift the conversation up front anyway toward a learning conversation. Not, you know, we've got these, move away from, you know, this is what we're going to do and just keep marching toward it and toward, we sort of know what we want to do and we're going to learn from the market what the priorities are. That's where the agile part comes in and, and systematize that and make the conversation as much as you can about about what you've learned and about what uh, customers really need and why you're building what you're building. When you get to the point where you you need to roll it out and it has it must have maintainability and uh, monitoring capability and must pass certain safety and security other kinds of tests, then you do do that. But you don't let those things crowd out the customer discovery and the and the shaping of the product up front. 
Yeah. So customer discovery first. We're very much focused on this podcast about understanding the problem the customer has, the value that, that will make a difference for them and how we can provide that. And let that be your focus first. That These antibodies show up in organizations where they will go to the end of what you're talking about. Like, well, we could never do that because we could never meet the safety expectations or the safety requirements. Well, well that, that seems to be kind of premature if we're not even sure what the fully formed proposition is for the customer, what, you know, what, what meets their needs. That's absolutely true. And they, I, I do think that if you find something that meets customer needs and you still have issues with security or with safety or something, engineers are good at solving those problems. Right. You know, they, you know, and, and customers are good at raising them. So you understand what you need to do. Sometimes people will overkill on certain things just because that's what they've always done. And sometimes it's not necessary. So I, I think you can, you try to defer decisions to the appropriate time in the process. That's essentially what you're doing. If people aren't getting out of the out of the office and out of the lab and taking their prototypes and testing them with customers, they're missing the whole point, though. Right. And so you know, that the the point of doing the experiment in situ with the customer, not as a demo, but as a you know using techniques from design to really learn from them, that's critical. Doing things quick, so you're not building the most elaborate prototype, that's critical. Keeping track of your experiments and is critical. And then confronting the data. If customers really don't want something, at some point you have to be able to admit it to yourselves. And teams will usually do that if they feel the permission to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Good. So I, I think you've given us some really powerful tips through this discussion. You know, ha having that, and, and I want to go back to this in a moment, having that innovation stage gate approach, putting later in the process the opportunity to deal with what the organization needs to deal with, like like the engineering regulations that would go into place to make a, a product actually maintainable, supportable, meaning legal aspect, and having it just a way to, to kind of push off some of those antibodies that fight against innovation, say, we're, we're going to deal with, deal with that at the appropriate time in the process. Right now, we're focused on customer discovery and that strong customer discovery concept. Talk to us a little bit more about this innovation stage gate sort of approach, right? Because most organizations involve some kind of phased approach to their innovation work where we do work in big phases. And the first part of that I think of typically as the scoping, which is where we're doing the customer discovery part, which is where I see lean startup being able to apply pretty easily. But then as we go down the road and things become more and more real, we, that, that changes. Tell us how innovation stage gate works, what that looks like. So, so you're developing a product for an existing business and it will fit well inside that existing business. Then I think you've, how you've uh, described it is how you would probably use the lean startup. But when, you're, when the product is different enough or you're trying to start a new business, you also have to innovate or create the business model. And, and that is even a more challenging um, innovation process for, for many companies. And it has its own antibodies. So that's really the second phase in the innovation gate. And then the third is incubation, which is in market. And, you know, companies that create new businesses do do this. They create an incubation business that's in market. They have learning objectives for it. The purpose isn't to grow it as fast as you can or to be as profitable as you can. It's to understand, are your assumptions about the business, about its potential for profitability, about customer uptake, about willingness to pay, about your cost to execute. Are they right? 
That's the first thing it's about. Can it be profitable, whether it's yet profitable? And the second question is, how are you going to scale this thing? What makes sense? And one option is always just organic scaling. But there are also other options. You can reorganize capabilities inside your corporation to create a new entity. You can acquire something and get scale more instantly. There are a lot of, or you, and when you invest, you can invest very aggressively or you can invest so that you minimize losses. That, that third phase is all about answering that set of questions about growing the new business. So if you're, in, if you're developing a product, even if it's a radically better product, but it's for your current customers, sold through your current channels, with your current business model, then I think the lean startup practices are an upfront endeavor. But if you're trying to create an entirely new business, you need all aspects of the, of right. the uh, gate. Okay, that, that, that uh, makes another, good sense. Another kind of resistance that you sometimes get in those early phases is just, you know, getting the time of people, getting the time of the sales force and, let, and having them let you visit customers as opposed to blocking it. Getting time of lawyers, getting past the IP concerns with sharing something before it's uh, fully uh, patented. Those kinds of things also come up. But there are uh, also ways of, of managing them. And, and I talk about some of those in the book as well. Excellent. Yeah, the book will be a good resource for us to, to go find out more details. One of the questions I wanted to ask you about was the, just the, the context here. In a, a startup environment, we are likely, you know, when you talked about the principles of innovation, of lean startup, how you innovate, you know, that the, the loop itself, doing the experiments for the, the MVP, that's taking place around a single context, usually, right? A single product concept, a single market. We're trying to put those together. In the large organization, we may have tens of these occurring at one time, correct? Sure. Yeah. A portfolio. Yeah. 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 So a portfolio approach where we're trying to quickly learn and figure out which ones should we prune off because the, they're not going to be the right thing to do for us or the customer, and which ones should we put more resources towards and, and carry on? And in that environment, then some of these issues seem to become bigger to, in my mind, right? The, you know, how do we get internal resources to help with some of these things? How do we just manage multiple ones going on at one time? Thoughts on that? I, I think you need to have dedicated resources to this. And you need to be looking at your opportunity spaces and your initiatives as a portfolio of uh, of initiatives there. So you're, and, and I think it's important to have some sort of an innovation steering group or whatever that gets engaged at least to look at the gate reviews and the decisions about which platforms or which opportunity spaces you'll go after. But there should be periodic portfolio reviews. You will find a lot of stuff falls out at the beginning where you thought there was a need and there wasn't a need or there was a need, but not enough value was created. Some things will fall out during business model development because you'll find out that for whatever reason, you could not capture the value you expected to capture. And, and then, but once you get into incubation, I think it's a question of, is it going to be big enough for us? Can we make it big enough? And, and you scale it there. But I think it, it's a portfolio view. That's, and, and so just if you're a large and you see an opportunity space in an area, for example, in the tire industry services, uh, you're going to want to place a number of bets and see which ones pay out, play out and which ones can be combined. The other thing I would say for that's at the intersection is 
large company, almost always when you see a big opportunity, someone else sees it too. If you stay tied in to the startup community, you may find someone who has a solution that will work with, with the vision you set for yourself. So keeping tabs on what's going on and how, what the relationship, uh, how you can create value for startups and how they can help you accelerate your growth agenda is another important part of it. So you, you've got a portfolio, but the portfolio also includes experiments with, with startups. Yeah, because they provide you resources and they can help you leapfrog ahead of things. Um, and I would expand startups to also, you know, research institutes, so university research institutes and the like. Places where we can find those new ideas and people that are solving new problems for us. Excellent. Jim, really good information throughout. I appreciate the clarity. I'm anxious to dive into more details in your book so that we can think about how to apply these lean startup practices in our larger organizations. As listeners know, we like innovation quotes. What did you bring for us and what does it mean to you? Well, the quote is uh, from Will Rogers. And the quote is, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we do know that just ain't so. So I really like that quote because I think innovation often gets hobbled by people who are making assumptions that they've never validated. And they're acting as if they're true and not going back and, and checking it. And that's where you get into real trouble. You can get far down the line, start spending a lot of money. And there are things that you know, you know, in your, in your bones, you feel like you know them. Maybe they're based on your experience with your existing business, but they actually aren't true. And so the, the, the challenge is to get yourself to, be, to surface those and do experiments to learn them. Richard Feynman once said something similar. He, he said, the most important thing is to not fool yourself. And unfortunately, you're the easiest person to fool because you, you are inside your own head. You know where you want to go. And, you know, so he was speaking from the perspective of a scientist. But I think it's, that's also true. You need to have the humility to understand that what you think is true, what you may think even is obvious, uh, needs to be validated. Yeah, it's a really important point. All of us bring biases to problems. If we have a path in mind, which is often the case when we're developing a product, a, a new product concept, we want to find information and data that supports that path. And we might purposely or maybe subconsciously ignore the data that doesn't. Yes, absolutely. And, and we need to avoid those biases. Yes, absolutely. And it's not to the quote, that's what really gets you in trouble because right. you, you go merrily along the road and, and you find out late. If you're open to learning it early, it's a, a low cost mistake. But if, if you, you stick with what you think is true without validating, it can be costly. Very good. Thank you for sharing that with us. How can people get their hands on your book, find out more about the resources you have and the work that you do? So the, the book, which is Lean Startup in Large Organizations, which is subtitled Overcoming Resistance to Innovation, that will be released uh, February 23rd, so in, in a few weeks. And it's, it's available right now on Amazon and on Barnes & Noble, so people can pick it up. I have a website called leanstartup.biz. So you can go to leanstartup.biz. You can sign up for my blog there and and you, you can read things as they come from me in, in that location as well. Those are probably the two best resources. Okay. And in doing research for this, I came across a website under your name. What kind of resources are there? Yeah, a couple. Of, under my name, I think it has some of, some of the things I've published uh, in the journal, some of the interviews I've had with, you know, as, as editor of the journal, I've had the chance to interview some of the real thought leaders 
in in innovation from Clay Christensen, Steve Blank and Eric Reese to, you know, people who are, you know, studying the human side of automation and so forth. So there are a lot of, I, I think, a, a lot of resources of that sort that people might find of interest. There's also a few papers on the journey at Goodyear, the business model innovation at Goodyear and how you do business experiments in a real large physical product company. So people might find those of interest as well. Excellent. And what is the name of the journal that you edit? It's called Research Technology Management. And it's a journal. It's 65 years old. It's published in print and online. It's available through, I mean, most corporations would have available uh, availability through their libraries, but it's for practitioners. It's focused on what works in the real world. So often the theories will be published in one place. We're trying to probe people, you know, publish papers that say, uh, where does it break down? What works? What doesn't work? That type of thing. Jim, thank you for sharing the uh, resources, good places for us to go to learn more, as well as your book, Lean Startup and Large Organization. When listeners are listening to this, this is likely past February as we record a bit in advance. So uh, the book is available now. Check that out on Amazon. I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes uh, for this episode. And Jim, I just want to thank you for your time and, and the, the wealth of information that you have over your career and sharing some of that with us. Thank you very much for the chance. And listeners, as a reminder, if you do want the detailed written summary of this and including the links that are in those show notes, along with that one-page action guide to help you put into action right now the immediate takeaways from our discussion, just go to productmasterynow.com slash 373. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.